Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Cargo of Bricks. Now, COVID-19 has had a sledgehammer effect on the Northern Irish economy, but how has business responded? What lessons has it learned from lockdown? And have our politicians finally learned the art of leadership in a crisis? Well, to try and answer these and other questions, I'm joined by Tina McKenzie, who is the present chair of the Federation of Small Businesses in Northern Ireland. So, Tina, tell me, what was the onset of COVID-19 like for small business owners in Northern Ireland? It was like a really quick, fast electric shock. You know, when you look at previous things that have happened in the economy, you could see them coming. You know, the recessions, the changes. You, you normally had weeks and months of things coming up. And actually, in any sort of previous recession, there were parts of the economy that were hit. But this was like an immediate shock. Uh, and a real, um, really we were facing the unknown. Nobody knew which businesses would continue to trade and which wouldn't. Therefore, you didn't know which which part of the cog was going to fall out. So I think it was just an immediate shock, a standstill, and what do we do? What are we meant to do? What was the first set of actions, if you like, in terms of, because effectively a lockdown means that local businesses, and I'm particularly interested in local businesses here, suddenly there's a, there's a, there's a, um, a schism between them and their customer base. Yeah, I think, the, I think what we first heard was, I mean, we had heard in the background the noises about China, then it became about Italy, then Spain, and I still don't think it hit people at that type. I mean, I remember looking at the, the pictures in Spain and thinking, well, our hospitals, you wouldn't have people lying in the corridors like that. You know, you felt like they were really um, developing countries rather than developed countries. And then when really, I remember being on an interview with Paul Clark and uh, Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster had come in and I could actually see on their faces real worry, real concern um, and I think, and that was around the start, second, first or second week of March. And I think that message came out about health loud and strong, that this was so dangerous, that immediately people thought about their own health and the health of their family and their loved ones. And then fast forward a week, so much happened within a week, where immediately um, the executive got up and said that uh, actually, first of all, it was the, the government in London got up to say, that certain businesses shouldn't be open, shouldn't be trading, and only essential businesses should be trading. And then the and then uh, Stormont followed suit, obviously. But the questions then were, well, what is essential and what's not essential? That wasn't cleared up for quite a while, and even right through the whole the whole of COVID, there were still some industries where it wasn't clear whether they should be open or shouldn't, um, and it was kind of left up to themselves in terms of whether they could open safely and protect the public, their staff, and and their customers. So I think in that week between the end of the, I think it was around the 12th, 14th of March through to probably 10 days later, that's when it all kicked in. And in my own business that I run here, um, I remember thinking, you know, right, what am I going to do? And it really was for the owners and managers to think, you know, very uninformed. Do I go whole hog and shut everything down? Or what do I do? And I remember sending out a message to our teams to say, right, from next week, everybody's going to be working from home. Half the people said, I don't want to work from home. Or, I can't work from home. I, I've got this or that or the other, or I like to work in the office. And I remember I remember having to say, no, 
it's an instruction. This isn't it. People didn't take it seriously. And and I didn't know how we could cope working from home. Now, of course, some businesses like professional services can. And it's proved to be a real eye opener, you know, uh, that you can really trust your people to work from home. You get more productivity. People don't take, you know, uh, the mix, so to speak. Um, but a lot of small businesses immediately had to shut overnight. And that was really sad for Northern Ireland because if you think we have more small businesses, more people employed in small businesses than the whole of the public sector and big business put together. 99% of businesses in Northern Ireland have less than 20 staff. And I think that real, you know, this is where business groups come into their own. You see people like Retail NI, Manufacturing NI, the FSB, really stood up and the chambers to support and guide people. And and their, by the way, their memberships really increased through the period um, because people really needed that. What do I do about HR? What do I do about this furlough? What does it mean? So I think it was just an immediate shock and people took the, the gut reaction that they felt they needed to. Um, but for Northern Ireland in particular, because we have so many small businesses, a lot of people were really, didn't get enough advice, didn't get any sort of time planner to lead into it and just had to close. And a lot of people lost stock, fresh food, you know. And then what we did have, Mick, is we had the whole of all the big supermarkets staying open. And that was something we weren't comfortable with because we said, you know, why is it okay for Tesco's to be open, multi multinational company selling shoes and the local uh, the local shoe shop can't open. Why is it okay for you know your Asda's to open selling meat and the local butchers can't open? And you know when you looked at so we we started lobbying pretty quickly on behalf of small businesses saying if they can prove to you that they can open irrespective of these grants you're offering and all these furloughs and everything else, the one thing business wants to do is trade their way through it. You know, that's the best thing for it. So quite quickly, we had a lot of work to do, but we needed to say you can't keep these small businesses closed and keep these big multinationals. It's not right for, especially our our little uh, economy in Northern Ireland and those small communities that rely on those small shops. And indeed, and you know, in a way, when you look down the high street of any small town or even, you know, areas of Belfast, really, what defines community very often is the retail, whether it's the pub, classically, um, or those kind of little rows of shops that you get in places like Ballyhackamore, or in the old days, particularly the Shankle Road. How did they cope in the meantime? Because, in a sense, realizing there was this differential between. To say the big multinationals and then the high street, many of which just basically became ghost ghost towns almost. How, how, tell, can you tell us how, say, some small individual businesses actually managed to adapt to get through all of that? Yeah, well, initially I think people froze. I don't think that there was an immediate move to how can we do deliveries or how can we do, how can we change maybe our product range? Um, the food industry got really busy. So if you look at our factories, you know, the food industry required another 500 to 1,000 people across Northern Ireland because people remember in that spike, they're all buying lots of food and storing it. And then therefore, we needed more drivers. We needed more people in call centres taking orders, you know, for deliveries and things. And people were questioning why the call centres were open um, the banks got really busy, actually, because people were calling up and therefore their contact centres, people were calling up about mortgages and how do I stop my mortgage? What am I gonna, how am I going to pay my loan? What loans are available, etc. So I think people froze initially. And then 
as business people do, if you're an entrepreneur, it's quite natural for you to like a challenge because otherwise you wouldn't be running a business because it's very much, it's a lot of hard work. Um, so I think then naturally the, the natural instincts kicked in. And if you've had a business in Northern Ireland, especially through the troubles, you've probably built up a lot of resilience. This isn't a natural economy to come and run a small business in an easy way. You've probably built it up through your families, working day and night, seven days a week, through hard times to keep it going. And I think just that sheer determination of, right, how are we going to survive? What have we got in the bank? What stock have we got? And then you saw some brilliant examples of people really thinking outside the box. So we've uh, a company that provides um, furniture to Disney, a small business in Northern Ireland provides the street furniture to Disney and Disney parks all over the world, China, America. And what he and he also has an environmental side of that business. And he started producing hand sanitizer that was up on a, a high, um, like on a high kind of dispenser. So you didn't have to touch it. And he was able to come out with that product within about four weeks of just getting his, his, his head down on it and, and engineering it. Then we saw um, other people with that blo- a company called Block Blinds. Um, they did a um, a kind of a joined up uh, product with um, Hutamaki, the Finnish company. And Hutamaki normally producing, you know, cups and, and cardboard for McDonald's and straws and things. And Block Blinds, obviously, blinds. And they got together and they started preparing PPE and various other products. We had another group of people, some people out of Queens and some other small businesses, all got their heads together because, remember, we had this big issue around not having enough respiratory equipment. And if you, if the NHS gets overwhelmed, where are we going to get? And these guys all came up. But, I mean, some of them, um, I mean, I had calls with some of the, the people involved saying, well, we just don't know how to talk to government. We don't know how to get to Robin Swan. We're not getting any answers when we call all these places. And I think that was one of the, one of the blocks was, how do we talk to each other in a situation? How do we get messages through before it's too late? Now, every and what I saw is everybody really helped everyone. There was nothing in it for some people to pull together just to help those businesses do things that we knew that we need. We need the PPE. We need the equipment. We need to help the health service. One of the interesting things that you've just said there, Tina, is this whole thing of when you made the clear decision um, to basically roll down and say everybody has to work from home that you find actually perhaps if you if you'd done a risk assessment on it beforehand you would have decided well that's too risky when you can't you know when somebody's not got eyes on um how can you trust employees and the other side of it was actually the productivity levels went up so tell us a little bit about that well i think we've been cultured in business to um really believe in the idea of the value of people being together. So interactions, emotional intelligence, bouncing off each other, holding each other to account. And and there's a, a feeling, I think, that you have to do that in the flesh. And this, there was, there's, I think in, in, in business, there has been a general, now not with all businesses, a lot of businesses have, have people working from home, the gig economy, et cetera, et cetera, works well. But I think with a lot of traditional business, the idea was, that if people are at home, they're probably not as focused on their job as they would be in the office where they haven't got distractions. So, and and moreover, um, can they do the job from home? Because we don't know. And what was interesting is, you know, as soon as we got up on Zoom calls, Microsoft Team calls, as soon as we got familiar with the technology, which happened, by the way, 
within about a week, everybody knew how to turn on the video, turn on the, you know, everything else. As soon as we got comfortable with that, and then we had to get empathetic with the fact that some, especially mums, but some some people were getting interrupted. They had caring responsibilities or they had children who weren't allowed to go back to school and they had nowhere for childcare. And you had to get your head around the fact that the more you trust and are empathetic with your staff, especially if little Kitty or Michelle is jumping on their knee and you understand and say, that's okay. You know, we're interrupting their home space. It's us that's doing that to them. Not that then I think people really ganged together and said, right, you know, they trust us. They're facilitating us. They want to protect the, the jobs and the business. I'll give it my all as well. And I think there was a real that camaraderie that comes along with everybody being in it together. I think that's one side of it. And that's really interesting. You know, that people actually bringing you into the privacy of their own homes, you know. But, of course, the other block, and you would have had it in your risk, risk assessment before this, was accountability. How do you know people are actually doing their jobs? Well, for particularly for our business, we had, I mean, I think a lot of businesses found this. COVID became a time when you got to do the things that you could never do in business. So we were always running so fast and we brought in systems where we can log all of our activities and our outputs and inputs and all of that. But we weren't effectively using any of that because we were relying on that face-to-face contact and, and, you know, didn't trust the system so much. And what happened was people started to use the systems more, use them better, because we, that's all we had in order to manage activity and, and look at how we were doing. And then we, we, we became much more output focused and looking at, OK, so besides all of that, what are we doing? How effective are we being? How successful are we being? And how tightly are we managing this through this crisis? And as soon as we got some comfort and you know, there was panic for the first few weeks, maybe three, four weeks. As soon as we started to see what was coming through and as we were driving through, I think we got some comfort and hold on a minute, this is actually working okay. And actually the outputs are still okay considering we're we're in COVID and considering the things that have happened. And we just all got a lot more relaxed. And as we got relaxed as management teams, the staff became more relaxed. And then again, you get better interactions again. So I think it's taught us all a lot about you know, when we're all relaxed with it, there's less of this having to prove you're doing something. And you might pick up your laptop and do a couple of hours at night. One of the dangers of all of this, and and you said there about bringing it into the home, people are struggling with that work-life balance thing in terms of, yes, it gives you more flexibility, but really in shutting off. And and, and one of the things I've always said is that you have to have that. It's okay for me to be on call 24-7, us, us that are in, in senior management positions, we're paid to take more responsibility. But for the general staffing teams, they need to have that uh, much more of a, a clear work-life balance. So we, we've had to reevaluate and relook at why are you getting emails after half five at night? Why is somebody, because they can't sleep because we've got this weird weather and because of COVID and anxiety, they're sending you an email out at three o'clock and going, no, 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 it's not acceptable because someone will pick it up and start to worry. So we've had to re- relook as well at, you know, make sure you switch off. Zoom calls are intense, a different type of intensity than sitting in a meeting room where we might have a coffee and a chat and run to the bathroom or whatever. These calls can go on for a long time. And it's about saying to people, get out and have a walk, take, take your phone. And if you have to phone someone, actually phone them on your walk. You know, take, take it. I mean, I say that to the staff and I don't even do it myself. I have to say, Mick, I'm, I'm a really bad example. 
but I'm always encouraging them just take that time out. We'll trust you. And I think we'll get it back in bucket loads. For, and I see we're already getting it back in bucket loads in terms of the commitment, even the people we've had to put on furlough and, and how committed they've been and understanding they've been of it. One of the things that strikes me is worth asking you a very direct, putting you on the spot and asking you a very direct question. What of all of this, what do you think we need to learn? What single thing do we need to learn going forward beyond COVID-19? Um, a lesson from all of this cooperation, you know, not just with government or not just, you know, power lobbying, lobbying the government, but the whole, what single change do you think we need, we could have that would really transform the future of uh, Northern Ireland out of out of this experience? I think it's leadership. Um, what we've seen is that things we should have done in Northern Ireland years ago had to happen right away. So we know that the health service needs a complete uh, restructure, reorganization. It's not fit for purpose. And unless we do that, we're not going to get effective health services. You can't have a hospital in every town. And political leadership needs to now, in the middle of in this COVID scenario, take the leaps that it should have done many years ago and politically didn't want to because it didn't want to alienate certain groups of voters. You see the same in education, Mick. You know, we should have closed these doubling up of schools all around the north when we know the best way to get peace in this place and build bridges is by teaching our children together. And we are wasting money separating them. And at the other end of the scale, we've got high poverty rates. We've got high economic inactivity. We've got all these issues that we really could be helping our people provide better lives for them if we could just get that leadership clear. And actually, I think 20 years ago, we had we had more confident leadership, you know, where they would make take risks and take calculated risks. We haven't seen that in a long time. What do you think about COVID-19 has actually changed that condition whereby that leadership has a better chance of, of actually taking root and changing things? When you shock a society the way COVID-19 shocked a society, you've got a small window of opportunity to make real change without people coming and challenge you. They've got political credit that they didn't have before. So look at Robin Swan. People will be respectful to his opinions on what we should do about the health service long term because he has done a relatively good job getting us through this. The first and deputy first minister, our results are actually, our numbers aren't bad at all compared to others. They've seemingly managed this together as a team. They've gained some political credit and people are seeing them operating as a team. So I think they've got a small window of opportunity not to go backwards, but to make those key core changes in education and in the health service that can get us set up for the future. Well, can you believe that we had people painting on the walls here where you normally have gunmen, people painting on the walls support the NHS? We had this opportunity to come together. There, you know, when you're going into hospital, it doesn't matter what religion or what background you're from, those nurses and doctors treat you with respect irrespective and I think the community had a shock that hit us all and it's not too often that we have an opportunity and although it's a negative thing it's not too often we have an opportunity where we're all affected in the same way by the same thing and we know that and maybe the second world war was the last time that happened in that way where you know the lights were off and everybody was affected we had and, and so therefore there is an opportunity to look at that and say okay and I think people are more flexible to say, you know, they've had a shock. You could have been, you know, you could have died. Lots of people did die. 
you know, life is short. What can we do better and differently together? From business development, what's the ask for business? What does business need not only to get back on its feet, but actually to get back on its feet and pay, play a better game than it was playing before COVID struck? In the short term, we have this plan where certain businesses are allowed to open at different times. It's it's upset the apple cart because um, lots of businesses rely on other businesses. So you go down the high street. If the offices aren't opened, then nobody's buying the coffee from the coffee shop, even if you open the coffee shop. you know. So I think we've got to understand how the totality of the economy works together. And I don't think we've really got that right. So I would like to see us have a more joined up approach in terms of the opening of the economy. That's in the short term. In the long term, businesses will evolve and survive. We've got to do a lot more investment in our infrastructure. We've always known that. There's not going to be a lot of money around. So we've got to pitch well in terms of where we should be getting our money from. But more importantly, Brexit's coming down the line. And we can't take a second hit in business. And when I say business, I mean all of us in our jobs and keeping people employed. You know what happened in the last recession? The amount of people we had unemployed in Northern Ireland that leads to criminality, that leads to mental health, that leads to poverty, that leads to underachievement for generations, economic activity goes through the roof. So for us, we've got to be awake to the fact that in, we should have had an agreement in the next week or two. There should have been an agreement on how this would all look. Now, Northern Ireland still has an opportunity to avail of some advantages of our positioning between the Republic and GB. We've talked about it becoming an enhanced economic zone. That would really help business here. Uh, Boris Johnson has said he's going to announce 10 free ports. Well, we don't want all of our ports going for that because they'll only get one. We're talking about get our ports together, come up with one solution, the ports and the airports, and we give Johnson the opportunity to select it all because he'll have to select it all if it's one. But let's come up with a, a plan. So there's plenty we can be getting doing that will help all business here and help us upskill and get better jobs. But position is right. We know that manufacturing is being taken out of China. A lot of companies are pulling out. What are we doing about saying we're in the best position here to be near shore to Europe? And remember, Ireland is the now the only English speaking country in Europe when Britain gets out. And we, we as Northern Ireland need to take advantage of that as well. So there's plenty of things. There's big data. There's green energy. There's lots of stuff we can be getting on with to build a much stronger, robust economy. And we're in a really good position because we're small. We're nimble, we're flexible, we can be faster than others. So where the executive have, have actually made great strides with this disaster of COVID, maybe they can do the same with the opportunities before Brexit hits us without preparing and planning and getting business equipped for it. Where do we get our inspiration from? Where are the stories from you know, from here or from elsewhere that say, if you're small, you're not only beautiful, but you're also potentially agile. You have less resources to move to make bigger effects. So we've written a paper, actually. Let's look at Rotterdam, yeah, and how Rotterdam became a free port. Let's look at Singapore as a country. It's a very small country. And let's look at either. Let's look at Finland and some of those Nordic countries. And you know, Finland is a really good comparison with Ireland. Six million people, 100 years old, et cetera, et cetera, um, as in the current states. Um, but there's plenty, there's plenty of examples out there. However, I actually think we've got the ability to be unique and be ambitious. And one of the things that worries me is that with the current uh, executive that we have, I'd say it's very left-leaning. And therefore, I'd say what we're going to see is a lot of talk about 
what we have to do for people, which is, you know, right, and, you know, all our public services need to be reformed. That's right and true. But it's not about spending more money on things. It's about um, transforming, transforming your care, transforming education and taking some big decisions for the economy and being ahead of the people. And I think if if we can get people moving in the right way, we can be ambitious. As you say, we've got our own traditions we are not Finland, Singapore, Rotterdam. We are Northern Ireland, as the song goes. And therefore, I think we've got enough within our own, with what we have, where we're placed, what's, what we're coming up against, both economically in the world and also with the, you know, the future of digital, um, the future of cyber. We have so many, and, and the relationships with the states and, you know, those, those deep, deep relationships over generations. We've got so many opportunities to go after, but I do think that sometimes in Northern Ireland, to be ambitious, you're criticised. To talk business, you're looked down on. You don't care about people if you're talking, or if you're a business leader. Oh my God, you, you're you must be some sort of slave driver or something. You know, it it is where we as a society are a little bit suspicious of entrepreneurship and companies and people. You know, succeeding. We've got to. We've got to. We've got to change the dynamic a little bit and make sure we look after our citizens, but you can't do that without a thriving economy. And we've got to get that message out. This idea that these parties can deliver without taxes is just pie in the sky. And they won't, no matter what their intentions are, without a good economy, they can't do it. You think it's you think it's a left leaning thing? I mean, look, the truth is we elect people we elect MLAs to spend other people's money. You know, we don't really have any tax raising power. So you've got, you have a fair point there, but it's a moot point since they don't have it. Is it all of that? Is it we're all just too bred in lefty because we're spending other people's money, or is it just because we don't like change? I don't think it's that we just don't want to spend and I don't agree with you, by the way, that we we can't be because we're beholden in a sense to the purse strings of London that we can't get ourselves up. I would like to see us up and running and self-sufficient and other economies have proved they can do that in short periods of time. We're only 1.8, 1.9 million people. You know, there are companies that are bigger than us. We we can do this. We've got to be positive about what we can achieve. Um, so I know, and I don't think it's that we just want handouts and whatever. I think we've been through a terribly hard time. I think most of us in the society that grew up through the troubles, you know, have known heartache have known poverty, have known discrimination, have, you know, they've had, people have been battered a bit, have have known terrorism, have known uh, deaths and, and, you know, and I think we've got to put that into perspective that, you know, we don't want to just wash all that away and say, okay, now just get on with it like a normal society. I think we've got to take people with us and I think we've got to show people and, and explain over and over again that the way to get a good society and show them to get good housing, to get good NHS, to get good education, and to you know bring our people together for good services, is that we have to make some tough decisions. We've got to be honest with people, and I think our people are so tired of just being told the same stories and no change. And the people that are economically inactive and in poverty have been so for generations, and they're not seeing the change. We've got to start telling them the truth and show them what it is that needs to change. Amen to that. <laughs> I think I might start a political party. Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by Sluggero Tool, Northern Ireland's leading source for independent news, insight and analysis. Support us by hitting the donor box button at sluggerotool.com.